This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, I hear we have a mystery story from the farm. <laughs> mystery story. Uh, the disappearance of the pet duck. The, goose. The, way goose. We're, the, the way we're disappearing is, well, okay, to even tell that story, I have to tell another story. So I've, I've been talking about how the, I call the goose he all the time, right? I was like, I think he's a boy. And I talked about how I call him Francis because the whole Deadpool reference. And, um, well, uh, Francis is a Francine or a Francis with an E because Francis started laying eggs, <laughs> which, um, okay. So when I post about that on my Facebook group, uh, somebody was like, oh, I didn't know that geese could lay eggs without a male mate. And my brain kind of exploded because I hear people say, I hear, well, I hear people say that about chickens all the time too. And it's easy to blow it off, but this is not somebody who would say something like that just out of the blue. Right. So a lot of people are like, oh, well, chickens need a rooster to lay eggs. And that's not true. They're going to lay eggs regardless. So will turkeys. And I'd always just assumed that geese were like other barnyard birds and that they're just going to lay regardless of whether there's a meal around. But then after that person made the comment, I was like, okay, what am I missing? Not like, oh, that person's stupid, but like that didn't come out of nowhere. What do I not know? So of course I went to go look it up and it took me a while to find somewhere that actually talked about it. But apparently in some breeds of geese, it is all the mating activity that triggers the hormones that cause the goose to start laying eggs. And I don't have a gander. So that obviously isn't true. But the other thing is geese are not supposed to lay this late in the year. Like normally the laying period is from like April to September. And I have a goose that started laying in like late October. So I don't know what's up with her, but it's a her. That's the, the, the point, right? So um, shortly after I discovered that she was a she, I had gone out to run errands and I came back, got back. It was like just shortly after dark. And she wasn't there. And normally she's always there to greet the car when I come home. And I was like, that's really weird. And so I started calling for her. And she's she's chatty. Anytime I call for her, she calls back. And then she'll rush her waddly way over to see me wherever I am when I call her. That's just how it works with Francis. And I called her and there was nothing. And I called her some more. And I went walking all over, calling her name. Nothing. Couldn't find her. Nothing. And so when it got, it's getting, it's dark now as I went and got a flashlight and I was like dropping shining lights under the bushes. And I'm thinking, well, maybe she like found another place to lay her eggs and she's like hiding on them and sitting them, but there's no reason for her not to answer me. And I, I'm getting more and more desperate and I'm frantic and I'm like looking all over and I keep widening the search and like for half an hour, I'm looking for this goose. I mean, I, I know she heard me because Neighbors half a mile away had to have heard me calling for her <laughs> and nothing. And I'm looking at the dogs like you 
bleepity bleeps, where's my goose? Why did you not protect my goose? And they're all just looking at me like, hey, you got me some treats? And um, and finally, I just, I gave up. I was just, I was brokenhearted. I, I know that there's always a chance that she'll get got. I mean, she free ranges. She goes wherever she wants. If she stays close to the dog, she'll be safe, but she doesn't always stay close to them. And, you know, we have hawks, we've got coyotes, possums, skunks, and uh, bobcats. There's just really no way to protect her. But I did not, I just wasn't mentally prepared for her to go missing so close to daylight. And it just gutted me. And I went to bed just, I couldn't, I could hardly sleep. I mean, I was just overwhelmed with grief that she, she was gone. I love that goose, apparently. Didn't realize how much I love her, but I love her. She's so much, she's so entertaining. She's just a part of my life, you know? And I had dreams all night of her coming back and us looking for her and finding her. And then I'd wake up and realize it was a dream and then just the grief would settle in all over again. It was just horrible. And so the dogs would bark in the night and I'd listen. I'd wake up, hear it and listen for her to answer back. And there was just nothing. And I just was trying to come to terms with acceptance that, yes, she was gone. And then that morning, the next morning, the UPS truck rolled through really early and the dogs started barking, as they do. And all of a sudden there was that familiar honk, honk, honk of her answering the dogs. Not the UPS truck? <laughs> no, not the UPS. It was the, the, she was answering the dogs and, and acting like a guard goose, right? Barking, basically barking at the truck and flapping her wings. And I went and rushed open, opened the door and there she was. And I was just like, oh, my God. So I had no idea where she went or where she was hiding. I'm just so happy she's alive. But now, whenever it starts getting dark, I go and put her up because until she stops laying, because I just I, I I will not be able to survive this again. I'm just like, <laughs> Francis, don't do this to me. And I know there's still the possibility of losing her, but I don't want it to be because she went and sat on some nest somewhere and something came and grabbed her in the night. So, yeah, that's my Francis story. Well, that's a good story, and the ending would have been perfect if you had just said, if you had ended it with the honking and, and she was there and everything was great, but then you went off into this little tangent about you didn't really know where she went and, and why she went and what was going on, and now you've got to do this other thing, so you really kind of overdid the ending, I think, a little bit, and I'm not sure that that's a satisfying ending, which might nice. give you a clue as to what our nice. show is about today. So today's show is going to be a follow-up uh, or a follow-through or a continuation of the show that we discussed. The episode a few weeks back, it was episode 257, which was on tying up loose ends and satisfying endings. And at that time, um, it was sort of an overview, right? So we kind of went over reader expectations and the disappointment that follows when those expectations aren't met and how those expectations can change from book to book and story to story and reader to reader. But that of all of those variables, there are still three things that every story promises to deliver. And those three things are emotional closure, conflict resolution, answers to questions that are still left open, and unity or loop closure, all of which I'm just laughing at the way Steve managed to tie that into my story <laughs> about the goose. But um, with each one of those, we had discussed what they actually meant, what they look like, how they might reflect differently in different types of stories. 
And then we focused on story endings specifically because tying up loose ends are an, it's an integral part of achieving a satisfying ending. It's, it's, it all comes back together because the ending is where everything comes and, and has to get sorted out. And that's where you either stick the landing for the book, the entire book, or you don't. So that was episode 257. And today I wanted to go a bit more in depth and look at what that might translate into by using a real life example. But before I can even go there, I have to take a little detour. And I want to talk about editors, as in the people who edit books. Because normally when I, when anyone says editor, there's a lot of confusion attached to that, um, especially if the person you're speaking with isn't, uh, hasn't been through the traditional publishing process or is new to the industry. Um, so when you say editor, usually the first thing that comes to mind is someone who goes through your manuscript to clean up all the typos and the punctuation and the grammar. And the person who does that, that's a copy editor. And that's entirely different from an editor. So in, in traditional publishing, copy editors, they're usually just contract workers. They're part of the uh, production process, the assembly line. And their job is to go through the manuscript word by word, line by line, make sure that the grammar is correct and punctuation all meets the whatever style sheet the publisher uses. In most cases, that's like the Chicago Manual of Style. And they'll make sure that, you know, names stay consistent and proper nouns and locations are all spelled correctly and that terminology is used properly. And the really good ones, they're going to do some basic fact checking as well. So copy editing is, if you will, it's, it's a process of zeroing in on the tiniest details. And it's a job that requires being so close to the forest that you can't see the trees. That's what, there's, that's what the job requires. It's not a bad thing in that case. That's actually what they're there to do. And editors, on the other hand, they, in, in the big publishing world, they actually work for the publishing company. They're actually usually the ones who uh, are, are the ones who buy your book on behalf of the, the publishing house. They're the ones who have to convince everybody else that it's worth taking on. They, editors in traditional publishing, they, they wear a lot of different hats. But for the purpose of what we're talking about today, I'm really looking at the, the hat that involves this hands-on, working with the story, sort of book doctor aspect of the job. So editing, or the editor, again, if you will, it's, it's a, a process of sort of flying over the forest and seeing the forest as a whole and how it all comes together in its different parts and maybe sometimes coming in for a closer look at the treetops, but doesn't really get into that nitty gritty of, you know, actual grammar use and, you know, punctuation and all that. So for indie writers, like a copy editor and an editor, they're both going to be contractors because, you know, you are your own publisher and you're going to have to hire out for whatever you do. But the individual roles of copy editor and editor are going to more or less be the same as they are with the traditional publishing. And why that matters to this discussion is because some editors, they can do the work of copy editor and some copy editors can do the work of editors. But they're two very, very different, very specialized skill sets. And it's really rare to find someone who's able to do both very well. And 
if I'm being completely honest, when it comes to the story mavens and the book doctors, sometimes it can feel rare to find someone who's able to even do that one thing well. And when we're talking about story mavens and book doctors, it matters because every author needs them. And some authors need them more than others. And there's no guarantee that when you do find one, that they're going to be able to work to the level that you need them to. And that that includes those on the traditional publisher's payroll. It's a very specialized skill that requires a, spe- a, a certain kind of thinking to be able to look at a book and all its missing parts and really understand how those parts all fit together. And what we see more and more these days in traditional publishing is sort of a general unwillingness of anyone in that publishing pipeline to take on work that isn't already close to being ready. So in other words, a finished book, even if it's got all the grammar and the typos cleaned up out of them, uh, even a finished book without grammar errors and typos that has a fantastic premise isn't going to be enough in itself to get an agent to represent it or an editor to acquire it if they see that there's an enormous mountain of work still to be done to get that book to stick the landing. And is that is that a change from years past? It's more or less been that way ever since I've been in the industry, but I think it's getting to be even more so. And at the time, I would hear people already talking about it like this is an issue. So I don't know to what extreme it's changed, but I know that it definitely has changed. Okay. And the thing about this whole, you know, story maven book doctor thing is as an indie writer, since you're the one who's doing the contracting, well, you'll definitely be able to find someone who can take the job. But if there's still a mountain of work yet to be done to stick the landing on in your manuscript, then shelling out the money, which can, I mean, prices vary, and often you get what you're going to pay for, but like a top-notch editor, someone who's worked in big five publishing houses as an acquisition editor can run you five grand or more. And shelling out that money may end up becoming a situation for you where you're basically slapping a coat of new paint onto a building that really does need to be gutted and remodeled. And that's not to say that the story mavens and the book doctors are being unethical or they're not doing the work. It's just that story doctoring involves seeing all these moving parts and figuring out which ones work and which ones don't and why, and then figuring out how to solve the issues. And the more challenging the material is, the harder it is to build that solution map and figure out how to fix it, how to make it work. And it's possible that the challenge you have on your hands is going to be, it's going to make it harder and harder to find someone who's capable of doing the job to the level that it needs to be done. Now, I personally I don't really believe that any story is unfixable. I believe every story can be fixed. But I'm a little bit on the fringe in that regard. 
And I, I suspect that's because I don't really have a lot of skin in the game. Like nobody at this point, I don't have money. I'm not surviving off of, uh, editing income where I'm only allotting a certain amount of time for it. And I'm handed something that's going to go like way needs way more work than I'm capable of doing in that amount of time. But for somebody whose entire livelihood sort of involves this kind of generalized frame of frame of reference of what it would take, um, when they're writing stories off as unfixable, I think that has more to do with the amount of work that's going to go into trying to salvage them multiplied by then having to fight with the author over it and get them to be on the same page and understand and see what it is you're seeing. And when you factor all of that in, it's just not worth it. You just like, why would anybody do that to themselves? Right. And that's all of which to say that no matter what you're writing or what publication path you intend to take, or maybe have already taken, it's always going to be in your own best interest to learn how to understand and dissect story issues and be able to see and fix as many of the can you can for yourself before you get to the point where you're handing that story over to somebody else. And that takes us back to today's subject of the story promises, the three promises that every story is basically claiming to, to deliver and satisfying endings because that's a very story-minded subject. To be able to really fully, uh, you know, stick that landing on all the different threads that you've got running in your stories, and it's going to vary from story to story of how many moving parts you have, what the genre is, et cetera, which we, is what we talked about in the previous episode. It requires being able to step back and look at the story as a whole, to see all the moving parts, how they intertwine with each other, and see the places that they fail to do it. And that's where it gets really frustrating for me. It's a really, really difficult subject for me to teach because it's one of those things that I understand story innately. You know, we've talked before on this show about how I tend to think in whole, like think in concepts of, as wholes, like these, these balls, these bubbles of thought that I get it all at once, right? Like every direction at once and I see it as, as a whole. But then trying to break it down and dissect it and, and, and show you all the pieces is really, really hard. And, and it's the same exact concept for trying to explain why some aspects of story work and some don't. And um, the, best, the best way for me to describe it, I, I, it sounds horrible, I'm going to stick my foot in it. And, and I don't mean it dismissively, I don't mean it badly. It's just the closest I can get to explaining it is that there's this very rude, very dismissive uh, saying that you've probably heard where someone sarcastically will say, well, I can explain it to you, but I can't understand it for you. And I don't mean <laughs> it like that at all. But, but it's like, I understand these things and I, I, I can't, I will never be able to explain it in a way that someone else can crawl into my head and get it the way that I get it. Some people will see it. Some people won't. And it just kind of is what it is, right? So I can do my best to break it down and show you, but it's something that you either get or you don't. And, and it feels a little pointless because if you already get it, then you don't need me to explain it. And if you can't get it, then it doesn't matter how much I try and explain it. So, you know, I'm just going to do my best, right? This and would not do, be sticking the ending if, if this is if this is the no, end. <laughs> no. I'm going to do my best. 
Um, and, and, you know, the, when I see things that I'll be like, okay, that's a good example over time or whatever, I'll bring them up and I'll describe it and hope that eventually my way of explaining it helps bring it into focus. But I want to draw off of a real world example that I've completely kind of doctored and touched for this episode, but it was something that I saw that um, did not stick the landing. And I was looking at it from an analytical perspective because in my own work, I'm always looking for the easiest possible way to solve a story issue that satisfies the, the missing elements without having to restructure the plot or do a lot of writing to make it work. And, and I have found in, in my experience of working with store, other story editors or whatever, um, even beta readers who will offer me solutions. Like when I put my own books out for beta reading, I'm not looking for solutions. I'm looking for factual errors or things they don't understand. It's like, don't even bother trying to tell me how to fix it. There's nothing you can say to tell me how to fix it that, I can, that will be better than what I'm going to come up with on myself. And I know that sounds so egotistical, but I, I do this for a living, you guys. Come on. Um, so they, I've found that the solutions that people come up with to try and fix story problems, nine times out of 10 are just so bizarrely complicated when there are far easier ways to do it. So I'm going to read now from some notes where I was looking at a easy solution to fix what was really a truly glaring, not so much a plot hole, but plot, like uh, unanswered, unsatisfying, just left open situation, right? So uh, here I go. So one of the things that this story does best is it establishes the motives and logic that point to George as a culprit in the heist. But what the story fails to answer is why separately George killed Frank, or even why Frank was killed at all. So Frank's murder, who did it and why, and how it was related to the heist, or if it was related to the heist at all, plays an enormous role in driving both character motivations and the plot forward. And yet at the end, we still have no idea why, or even if the murder was connected to the heist. By the end, we do know that George was the one who killed Frank, but we have no idea why George killed Frank. And we don't know if it was part of the heist or if it had to do with something else George had going on. The story also fails to answer what relationship George had with Maple. By the end of the story, we know that Maple was definitely a ringleader of something peripherally connected to both George and the heist. And we know our hero suspects the connections. And there are circumstantial clues that also allude to the connections between them. But there's no clear map to what those connections are, which leaves it all very murky and somewhat confusing as to how Maple was actually involved or how much of what George did was because of her. This is a huge plot point that needs to be resolved. The pieces for resolving it already exist. They're just missing on the page. Getting them clarified could be as simple as having our hero reflect on what the various details he's uncovered mean in a very clear and practical way. Like, because of this thing over here, I knew these other things. And when you looked at the other things, it was clear that they all led back to X. And my theory about X is blah, blah, blah. 
which is why I was now on my way to do X, Y, Z. It's just making sure that we understand the character's thoughts and his motives and how he understands it will clarify for the reader things that might have been missed along the way, the inferences that are now drawn into conclusions. So there's no question, nothing is left open and we're not left wondering. That would bring closure to that aspect of the George and Maple connections. But back to the issue of who killed Frank and why. For nearly two thirds of the story, our hero believes almost to the point of obsession that Kate is the one who killed Frank. This obsession, obsession has driven our hero to keep digging. And that digging was what uncovered part of the George side of the plot. So the pursuit of Kate is very necessary to this story because that's what leads our hero to George. But about two thirds of the way through the story, our hero finds direct evidence pointing to George as being responsible for the heist. And in that instance, the threads slip and are just left flying loose. What had been three separate issues of who was responsible for the heist, who killed Frank, and if the heist and Frank's murder were connected, all disappear without any explanation or thought process. It just sort of magically and invisibly happens and then they return as a single thing. Our hero, realizing George was the culprit in the heist, drops the Kate as murderer thread almost as if Kate had never existed, and now George as heist mastermind becomes simultaneous with George as murderer. But nothing is there to connect them. For why? So it's like the plot disconnects from itself, separates like two trains uncoupling, and that middle train, the middle car, the plot forgets that the questions of why someone killed Frank and if the heist and murder were connected even existed. So it's like removing that car off the track and the two on the end are recoupled and the plot picks back up again without breaking stride. So by the end of the story, we do know that George murdered Frank, but we do not know why George murdered Frank. And we can only assume that the heist and the murder were in some way connected due to George being at the center of both of them, but we don't know what that connection is or was. So that is one full issue, right? Then there's the issue of how we learn that George is the murderer. This comes about because our hero, who until two thirds of the way through the story suspected Kate as murderer, now knows George was the heist mastermind and then so suspects that George is the murderer too. By the end of the story, we know our hero was correct in suspecting George of murder, but we are never given anything to draw that conclusion for ourselves. We just know that he suspected it and he acted on that suspicion. And so just knowing that our hero was correct and that George is indeed the murderer isn't enough to provide closure for that threat. Because when suspicions aren't backed up by logic or practical reasons, they feel contrived and lucky, sort of dusak machina, and the reader feels cheated. And here's where the issue diverges again. Unlike the question of why Frank was murdered, or if the heist and murder were connected, which vanished two-thirds two of the way through the story, the mechanism for establishing 
and Kiro knew it was George who killed Frank does exist. The problem is the plot points that are meant to establish this don't work. And so while it's all great action on the page, it still doesn't provide us closure or answers. So the way it's written now, our hero confronts George with accusations and threats in an attempt to back George into a corner. He believes that George's only two options at this point are to run or to try to murder our hero. And by our hero's reasoning, if George does show up to murder our hero, which is indeed what happens, then this is proof that George killed Frank. Because in our hero's mind, the only reason George would have to want to kill our hero is if our hero was correct about him also killing Frank. Which works on only the simplest of levels because it oversimplifies the options and completely overlooks other reasons why George might still want to kill our hero, even if he, if George wasn't the one to murder Frank. For example, George just might feel threatened, period. George might be afraid of our hero taking proof of the heist to the cops, as our hero said he would, which would then see George arrested for that. George doesn't know our hero was lying about having proof of the heist. That accusation alone, not knowing that it was a lie, might make him afraid enough to try and kill our hero before our hero can act on it. Doesn't have anything to do with Frank. George might be afraid of Maple and feel he's between a rock and a hard place. And by eliminating our hero, he would also be doing Maple a favor and would keep himself alive a bit longer. Or George might just be pissed off that our hero threatened him at all. Those are just a few possibilities, but even those few are enough to shut down the black and white logic that if George tried to kill our hero, then that means he was the one who killed Frank. So even though we get the fight and all the actions on the page, and we know in the end that our hero was correct in expecting George or Frank's murder, without a logical trail to lead us from A to Z, there's nothing holding this part of the story together. So for all of these major plot points to stick the landing, we need to know what relationship George had, George had with Maple, how Maple connects to George's actions, why George killed Frank, how Frank's murder was connected to the heist, and how our hero knew George killed Frank. So the first four are relatively easy to resolve by simply making sure those aspects are clarified along the way through the story. It's not complicated. The plot is already set up to work. It's just that there are questions that are left answer, unanswered because they don't show up on the page. The fifth is a little more challenging, but there's definitely a way to resolve it without having to restructure anything. Currently, as it's written, when our hero confronts George, they have a lengthy conversation in which all George does is lie, cowardly and badly. This makes everything George says suspect. But if instead this conversation was restructured to give, more, give it more nuance, and it's made obvious that some of the things George is saying are true, it would provide an opening to explain both to our hero and the reader what the relationship between George and Frank actually was. And those clues could be what lead our hero to realize it wasn't Kate who killed Frank, but George. In this version, our hero would be stopped cold. He'd have gone to confront George for one thing and get a completely different understanding and switch course on the spot 
using what he's hearing right in that moment to chart a new course in which he pretends to have, for example, been contacted by an anonymous source who was in the area when Frank was murdered and who claims to have video footage of the killer on the premises and who doesn't want to get involved and so wants to turn this over to our hero to take to the police. And our hero threatens George that if he was the one who killed Frank, then by this time tomorrow, the police will have all the proof they need. Well then, under those circumstances, the entire setup as it's currently written would stand without, with minimal changes. And the unanswered questions would be opened simply, uh, the unanswered questions would be closed, answered, simply by rewriting one conversation. And in that one conversation, filling in the missing pieces that are still left open, not spelling them all out so as to be blatant in your face, but enough so that it, the rest of it makes sense logically. The reasons for George wanting to kill our hero are logical, and they directly connect to his murder of Frank. And it brings it all together in a way in which there is no other option. In that situation, we stick the landing. But that's just one example. There are other ways to do it. That's just the one that I have to offer. All right. Well, that was a great example. And that it really did help to flesh out what you talked about in, uh, in episode 257. Without somebody else having read the story that I'm referring to, it's still going to come across as, yeah, I don't quite get it because you don't have the example right in front of you. But why I'm reading these notes here is so that you can see the level of thinking that goes into story doctoring, story mavening, whatever, for fixing what doesn't work and make it better. It is a process of tearing, pulling apart the elements and figuring out what needs to be moved where and how to snap it all back together and again in a way that it fits fully together. And ideally, these are the types of things that you'll catch as you're writing your own stories, but you don't always. And that's why we need someone else who actually understands story to look at our work and that uh, you may have beta readers who are capable of that, but most beta readers don't read at that level. They're, they're looking for the smaller things or um, they're going to find far different solutions. And, and you're going to, in a situation like this, it would be a case of, well, what if, and then it would go off and all that. What if you had George over here and, and then the hero was over here talking to this other person and then they happened to stumble and, and it just would involve these massive levels of rewrites to, and, and wouldn't even necessarily solve all the problems because it would create other ones at the same time. So the reading of this is not to say, here, now you should understand it, but this is the kind of detail you have to go into when you're analyzing a story to see, is there a plot hole? Is there something that's left open because on first read, it might seem like, yeah, this is okay. But when you start looking at it deeper, you're like, wait a minute. Right. And that's what this is about to show you what that's like to have to go in and pull apart a story. 
And I, I think, I mean, you, you, you alluded to this with beta readers. Beta readers are, the good ones, are, can, can be really useful in terms of spotting things like this. And in, this is a wild generalization, but in my experience, they're not great at coming up with potential solutions. Um, a lot of times their solutions are really convoluted. So one of the big episode, uh, takeaways for, for this episode from me is the idea that, okay, you have this problem, the, the problem's been identified or you've found it yourself, and it's not to panic and go, oh my gosh, I've got to rewrite 40% of the novel to fix this. In a lot of cases, there will be a simple solution if you'll give yourself time uh, and, and the mental space to come up with it. Exactly. You nailed it. Well, with that, (laughs) we are out of time. Satisfying ending. (laughs) (laughs) We are out of time. Um, Thank you, Taylor. We will be back in your ear again next week. And my wife is now mocking me for using that phrase. But we will. I will continue to use it because I like it. And if, if you guys hate it, let me know and then I'll stop. But in the meantime, I'm going to continue to use it. So we will be back in your ear next week. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. See you next week.